Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. In this episode, we speak with Michael McCarty in Toronto, Canada. Michael is a veteran music publisher who was inducted into the Canadian Music Industry Hall of Fame in 2019. He was president of EMI Music Publishing Canada for 17 years, spent four years as the president of Anthem, and seven years as the chief membership officer of SOCAN. McCarty has worked in various capacities with artists including Neil Young, Michael Jackson, Loverboy, Brian Adams, Drake, and Alessia Cara. We sit down with Michael to discuss the Kilometer Fund, where he and his partners are building a fund that enables investors to participate in the hot market for music royalties. He explains why music has become such a commodity and why Canadians are dominating the music charts right now after a groundswell of talent spanning five decades. Michael, welcome to Beat Seeker. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of your podcast, so it's a, it's actually an honor to be here. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, is, you know, especially you've had such a long and accomplished career in the music industry. I mean, pretty legendary recording engineer, head of EMI Music Publishing Canada. Um, you ran SoCan for a while, Canada's uh, performing rights organization. And now you're involved with a new project called uh, Kilometer Music Group. Can you tell us a little bit about the new project and how you got involved? Well, it's uh, it's really a case of seeing a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because of a convergence of several sort of things or threads out there. Number one overwhelming one being the uh, incredible growth of the music industry, uh, mostly driven by streaming, but entirely driven by the digital, digital monetization of music. Um, so that has created a couple of other echo effects. One of them is an unprecedented number of artists who are interested in selling their catalogs and their royalties and their rights, and an unprecedented amount of interest from the investment community in the music royalty space. So hmm. uh, my partners and I uh, uh, you know, saw this opportunity to pull those threads together and, and take advantage of it. So, um, and it really started with one of our partners, Gavin Brown, who is a, an incredible songwriter producer, that uh, that I signed at EMI Publishing when I when I was president uh, twenty years ago, and Gavin turned out to be uh, a real cat. I call him a catalyst. Uh, there, there's people I've run into in my career in my life that that um, that seem to just cr- create something out of nothing. You know, I, I think that the chemical definition of a catalyst that is a chemical mm-hmm. that's necessary for a chemical reaction to occur, but it's not part of the reaction, right? Yeah. But anyway, anyway, so Gavin, uh, very soon after I signed him. Uh, proved to be very entrepreneurial. He, he brought in a band called Three Days Grace and a band called Billy Talent. And together we, uh, we helped those bands develop uh, into uh, hit songwriters and have you know, significant careers. And, uh, and so that was the beginning of my experience with Gavin. And so um, in uh, late last year, he happened to be golfing with uh, another acquaintance of mine, a guy named Greg Gishon, who's the chairman and founder 
of uh, co-founder of Barometer Capital, uh, a, a, a boutique Bay Street firm that manages about a billion and a half dollars. Uh, uh, and and I had interested Greg in the music royalty space a number of years ago. He just sort of he got intrigued by it, but never did anything about it until about three years ago. He started a small royalty fund of twenty million dollars and. Did, a, did very well with it and then decided he wanted to um, take another crack at it at a, at a much bigger scale. So Gavin happened to be golfing with Greg and Greg uh, told him, uh, so, uh, and they didn't know each other at the beginning of the golf game and they f- found out what each other did. And Greg said to Gavin, oh, I'm thinking of starting this new fund. I want to do it on a big scale. And I, I keep talking to Mike McCarty about it and he doesn't seem to be that interested. And Gavin says, "Well, I know Mike," and and, and he called me uh, from the from the from the fairway, and and he said, "Hey, I'm golfing with Greg Gishon." And I said, "I'll oh, say hi to Greg," you know. And he said, "Well, he wants, you know, w- w- what's it going to take to get you to do this royalty fund thing with him?" And I said, "Gavin, I've said to get Greg before. It has to be A, B, and C, and can't be D." And and uh, and Gavin said, "Okay." Hung up, and about a half an hour hour later, he called me back and said, "Greg's in." <laughs> and so Gavin, so once again, Gavin was the catalyst for That's something awesome. coming together. So. Uh, we started uh, thinking about what, what it would, what, what it would, uh, what shape it would take, and what our strategy would be. And it very quickly became clear that we needed uh, a colleague of mine from SoCan named Rodney Murphy. Rodney uh, was my VP of A and R, and um, and and actually my designated successor at SoCan. Uh, I was the chief membership officer. Just a minor correction: I didn't run the whole organization. I was the chief membership officer, so responsible for ensuring that we had all the members that brought us their rights and royalties. So um, Rodney and I had uh, had quite a string of success there in reversing the brain drain at SoCan of uh, big stars leaving. And uh, we brought uh, virtually all of them back and their, and their rights and their royalties and, you know, doubled the foreign revenue of SoCan in a few years. And it was quite successful and we worked really well together. And um, Rodney was uh, uh, an expert relationship person. And um, so as we pulled together our, our thoughts, we all shared the same sort of vision, which was to uh, the, the first starting with the notion that Canada has been killing it in the music scene, international music scene for decades and killing it at a rate far beyond, like people use the term punching above our weight, right? Um, which is a violent term. I wish I had a better one off mm-hmm. the top of my head, but that's the one people tend to use. And and um, it, it's actually been to some of us in the industry who observe this and who are champions of Canadian music. It's been very frustrating that, that forget the rest of the world. Even Canadians don't understand how uh, you know dominant Canadian music has been internationally compared to the size of our of our country. And and uh, so and 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 so we we pulled together these ideas and said, you know, what if we sort of did what Rodney and I did at SoCan, which was bring back the rights and royalties of, the, of Canadians who had made it around the world uh, to Canada, uh, which would bring, uh, you know, be a symbolic thing, you know, bring the rights back, an economic thing, bring the royalties back uh, and, and invest um, money in also developing new talents and, and new writers. And, um, and, and this could have a really positive effect on the, on the Canadian ecosystem because one of my biggest fears is that um, you know all ecosystems are delicate things. You know, if you pull a little bit of the plankton out of the pond, you know the the tadpoles die, and then this dies, and next thing you know, the whole thing's gone to hell. So, uh, and and there are we could get into it if you want, but there's a whole host of reasons that 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 fit together 
or, or organically that create this ecosystem from which all this incredible talent reached the world market. And I'm a just I have this fear that one of those things will 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 disappear that, that one of those elements will disappear and therefore the future opportunities for Canadians to do the same thing uh, might be you know reduced or or, or or largely disappear. So we want to make a positive impact to the sustainability of Canadian music too. So that that became the goal, and it happens to be our strategic and competitive advantage because um, if you look at the incredible amount of music that's come out of Canada over the last five, six decades, anybody in our industry could imagine building an incredible portfolio of those rights and, and, and copyrights. And, uh, and they wouldn't even understand that they're Canadian. I mean, we, when we show our pitch deck to potential American investors, uh, for instance, without exception, they're flabbergasted to find out that the people, both the artists and the behind the scenes, you know, uh, co-writers, beat makers and producers are Canadian on our list. They just, sometimes they argue with us. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. They're like, yeah, they can't all be Canadian. Right. But, yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's only us Canadians who really care that much often. Right. But I, I guess in your case, uh, you know, it's, it, it's actually, you know, competitive advantage or, you know, it's such a, an interesting angle. So, why, why Canada? Why do you think Canada and specifically Toronto has become such an epicenter for music? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think that the answer has uh, sort of evolved over the, over the decades. You know, if you look back in the early phases, like for instance, um, you know, in, in my life, in my career, um, my number one inspiration for um, wanting to get into the music business and, um, and, and realizing that a Canadian could be in the music business was the guess who. Uh, I, I consider them to be the big bang of Canadian music, you know, before them, nothing. And after them, everything came <clears throat> and, part and specifically um, my hero was the, the their, uh, their producer, uh, Jack Richardson. And I consider him to be the godfather of Canadian music. Here's a guy that um, he was, if anybody out there has seen Mad Men um, uh, and, and is a fan of that show. Uh, he was uh, the music director at McCann Erickson ad agency in Toronto. And in fact, if you look at the, 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 the plot thread in, in Mad Men, McCann Erickson plays a big role. And there's one moment in, I don't know, halfway through the, 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 the series where they bring in pop music and rock music into, into the ad world. Well, that was what Jack Richardson did, that he's actually the guy who invented that. And um, he discussed in doing so, he bumped into the guests who worked with him in the studio, realized that they had this, this world-class potential. So he, he, he had a wife, five kids and a mortgage and a job. He quit his job, mortgaged his house and, and rolled the entire dice on the band. And, and he, he paid for them their first album in, in New York personally, uh, and then got them the record deal with RCA and, you know, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So, me growing up a small town, Lindsay, uh, you know, having suffered multiple waves in my life to this point of being really interested in, 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 in dreaming of a career that all of a sudden you realize, oh, Canadians can't do that. Number one, being an astronaut, I want to be an astronaut so bad. But then I woke up one day and said, hmm, only Russians and Americans can be astronauts. I was too stupid to realize that someday that would change. But at that point, you know, that's why I'm a very, very sensitive people who need role models, right? Mm. They, they need to see, you know, whatever their gender or their, uh, you know, their culture is in a certain position until they see that they don't believe they can do it. That absolutely was true with me too. So I could see this Jack Richardson guy from Toronto doing this and, and the band didn't move to the, to LA and he didn't move to LA. I go, my God, you, you can be Canadian and you can do this and you can do it on a world stage. So my long winded story, that band was from Winnipeg. Guess who else was from Winnipeg? No pun intended. 
you know, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, Neil Young. And there has to be something about, you know, uh, being in the prairies, uh, mm-hmm. nothing to do eight months of the year, except sit in your basement and learn and learn your instrument. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they also, you know, if you, if you really dial back into those stories, um, there was an incredible live music scene in that area, et cetera. So, you know, there was some of those elements, but I just think that, um, today there's a very, very, very clear pattern. And by the way, this sort of, we call it the Canadian invasion. This Canadian invasion has been going on, as we say, from at least since the guess who era. Um, uh, and, and, you know, before that, the people who had to leave Canada, like Joni and Neil. Um, but um, but uh, it's reached such a peak today that it's incredible. Um, you know, you can take any week, any week of the global streaming chart, and, and that week you'll see at least three Canadian artists on it. Bieber, The Weeknd, and Drake being the t- t- typical ones. And then one of them will rotate out depending on the recording cycle and in comes Shawn Mendes or Alessia Cara, whatever. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of the story. The real the real whole story is the below the scene, below the waterline, behind the scenes people, songwriters, beat makers, and producers that also contribute to the writing and, and creation of these records and songs. And um, so any given week, if there's three Canadian artists in the worldwide top 10, there's a, probably at least three other songs by other superstars that aren't Canadian that are co-written by or produced by Canadians. And so the actual Canadian president in the glo- presence in the global uh, chart any week is sometimes at least half the chart. Hmm. Uh, Billboard just published um, the list of their top songs of the summer. This summer, 20% of them have Canadian presence. What, what are some examples of those, Michael, that... People, common songs or artists that people would know about, but don't maybe appreciate the, the below the water iceberg of sure. people that are uh, well, contributing. Well, uh, uh, Dua Lipa's uh, "Levitating" a great example, mm-hmm. uh, co-written by and produced by uh, Cause Stephen Cosmeniak. Um, that's an example, uh, a really good example. Um, the you know if if you look at the weekend and the Drake camps. And it's a long-winded story to get back to your question of why Canada and why now, et cetera. But um, those camps, for instance, they are really camps and they, they, they produce people that co-write and produce records. And so once you, once you have a cut on a Drake or the weekend record, um, the, you know, next thing, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Post Malone's calling. And uh, and post Malone's circ- one thing leads to another success yeah. and notoriety. Then people want you on their yeah, projects. Yeah, and, and and so it's it's incredible. And, and the, about three or four years ago at SoCan, I realized I saw this pattern uh, before that, but we actually did the math, and, and at that point we had over eighty members of SoCan songwriters living in the greater GTA area, including Hamilton, etc., that were co-writers on Drake and Weekend records. Eighty people. That, wow. that we're now, you know, t- attacking the global market, right? And you know, you got, uh, uh, you know, get uh, all these people: Wonder Girl, um, you know, Frank Dukes, um, Boy Wanda, um, you know, Cause, as, as I mentioned, um, Belly, who's uh, the person that we've acquired his catalog in our company. Um, it's just incredible uh, the, the, these number of people. And I think that the breakthrough moment for all of this was Drake. Uh, and, you know, Toronto has become such a melting pot of the world, this multicultural. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think that that plays at all in in this success story in that, you know, we've got just this rich cultural, uh, you know, groups mixing together here? Um, great question, Mike. And you're absolutely right. It's absolutely key. So if you look at, you know, the absolutely, you know, stratosphere levels that the Canadian invasion is at right now, 
that is a key player in it. it, it the, you know, um, you could do a word cloud, and I've done this. I, I did a Rodney and I at SoCan. We did a word cloud of all these people, including the artists, the curators, the beat makers, and producers. And it's astonishingly reflective of the multicultural makeup of Canada. And so, if you take the the current slate of artists, and let's say let's say artists, you know, recording artists, performers, the public knows, uh, and the behind the scenes people, but starting with the artists, and there's a common denominators are um, they are disproportionately multicultural and often immigrants or first generation children of immigrants. Um, the, uh, the weekend's a fantastic example of that, right? So he's Ethiopian Canadian. He was born in Canada, but his mother wasn't. He's managed by a Lebanese Canadian born in Lebanon and an Iranian Canadian born in Iran. So, uh, you know, that's, there's no better example. Uh, so number one, multicultural number two, they all make music in the box. Uh, you know, meaning they make music on the laptop, basically anywhere they can often hotel rooms, you know, basements, uh, bedrooms, sometimes, you know, sometimes real studios, but all over the place, um, live instruments. And this is a whole tangent we can get into, but live instruments play virtually no role whatsoever in the making of their records and live those, they, they, they play sort of a prop role, you know, um, and, uh, they're disproportionately, uh, uh hip hop and RB influenced, um, and I think that's partly because of, uh, uh, you know, growing up in an in immigrant uh, culture where they are, you know, their family's not introducing them to the, uh, uh, to the history of Canadian music, you know, rock, folk, whatever. So they're, they're getting their, their heritage music from their family. They're getting modern music from the culture. What, and what do they hear and see? They hear hip hop and R and B. Um, the, uh, Another another thing that's that, that that connects these people that blows. I've I've had people's brain matter. I had to wipe off the wall uh, when I say this to them because the Canadian the Canadian music the, the the Canadian music business and the people who run it are are very uh, rock and live music oriented and guitar oriented. Um, not not a single one of the of the current slate of Canadian invasion artists played live before they were famous. Uh, it's, there's no such thing. I mean, if you look at the facts, there's no such thing anymore of grinding it through the clubs, getting together in a garage. doesn't happen. That's hmm. fascinating. And it, it, you know, being from Toronto too, it, it like growing up here, it was always, it was never something that people, you know, flexed on at all. Right. It wasn't like, yeah, Toronto, I get, and, and you're right. Like Drake was almost like that, that, the, that first artist who made it cool to be from Toronto, right? Oh, who, yeah. who really kind of yeah. like put it out there, not, not like globally, right? It's amazing. You, you know, well, not only cool to be from Toronto, but actively promoting and his, promoting it, promoting oh, yeah. Toronto. I'm sure, like so. So I grew up dreaming of like going to Kansas City and standing on you know 12th Street and Vine or whatever you know the line is in that song. Yeah. Americans exporting American culture around the world. And you dream of just get coming and getting a taste of that. I can guarantee you there's kids that come from all over the world to Toronto and want to go somewhere that Drake talks about it in one of his songs. Right. Or Degra the, you know, Degrassi might've had a, a factor yeah. in some of this too, right? Well, well, that's a really great point. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the, the, the breakthrough of Drake uh, and being the, really the reason why all this is happening now. So um, I'll t tell you a funny story. So when I ran into my publishing, uh, MySpace came along 
And I thought, well, this is fantastic. Um, and we, you know, and we were, you know, big students and consumers of MySpace. And we realized very quickly you could use it as an AR tool. And, uh, you know, and we had this weekly AR meeting amongst my staff and I. And, and, um, uh, and we would look, we'd look at, the, at the MySpace charts. And for almost a year, Drake was number one and number two in MySpace. He had two different accounts. He was number one and number two. <laughs> and, and we're going, you know, we studied it. We go, what's going on here? And, you know, and I would ask people, I would listen to it, like, well, it's pretty good, but it's this, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe he's gaming the system. And um, while we're trying, while we're trying to figure this out, um, he, uh, he, 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 but here's what's happening. And, and I'll tell you a funny story of how I know this, but like a like year later after he, this, all this happened and I missed signing him and I, and uh, a guy from our New York office, uh, his name is uh, John Platt, who's now the chairman of Sony publishing, uh, called me up one day and he said, Mike, I'm coming to Toronto to sign Drake. And I said, well, thanks for the heads up. And, you know, we talked about, you know, what he saw and he saw Drake blowing up in America on the street on the mixtape level. And, and so about a year later, I was in LA with my family and I, and cause I used to work there for about six years for EMI. And, and uh, I was uh, having dinner. We were having dinner with two uh, families of women that I, they were my colleagues there and they had younger kids in mind. And we were sitting in some family restaurant and, and big long table and their families were on one side and mine was on the other and their kids all for the first 20 minutes, they didn't say a word. All they did was stare at us. And then finally, it got really uncomfortable. And finally, the bravest one spoke up and said, you guys don't sound Canadian. And I said, oh, I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, you don't sound like those people on Degrassi. And uh, I said, oh, you watched Degrassi? And one of the mothers said, are you crazy? And she went on to explain it was like the biggest thing in the, in the teen and tween market in America on Nickelodeon. Canadians knew nothing about this. I was in the entertainment business in Canada. I didn't know that was the case. And so the, the explanation of Drake's explosion in America was that when he left the show and started putting out mixtapes on MySpace, through MySpace and the other routes, he already had several hundred thousand fans in America. And, and, and so be blowing up on the street. One of the things, one of the great things about the American music industry is no matter how many biases they have in their, in their sort of mental filter system of, you know, oh, that's not cool. This is, you know, whatever. They always listen to what the public says. And so Drake had, and this is why I had my argument with uh, John Platt when he called me and said he's coming to sign Drake. And I said, but John, and I, and I would rattle off, you know, what I thought with the American music industry's checklist was for people in, in Drake's genre. Well, he's never been arrested and this and that, you know, and, and he was on a TV show and, and, and he just said, yeah, that's what makes him cool. You know, so in other words, they'll throw out all their rules if the public speaks. So the public <laughs> spoke about Drake and Drake turned out to be unbelievably so I don't, I don't want to you know misstate it. it he wasn't successful you know because of degrassi of any artificial reason he's incredibly talented and an absolute genius you know in in you know all, all areas of what he does was, degrassi was just a bit of a launch pad maybe in the same yeah. way that uh the mickey mouse club is was has been a bit of a launch pad for ariana grande yeah. and justin timberlake and artists like that in the States. And, and you talk about the ecosystem so you know, people will always wonder what role the grant system and CanCon and all the other support things that Canadian artists have uh, going for them, what role that plays in the international success. And it's often difficult to trace things back directly. That's why I call it an ecosystem. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, the, the cream rises to the top of the milk. Well, if there's no milk, there's no cream. And, and, and so I don't think you can pull anything out and say, it, you know, it wasn't necessary but, or helpful. But the number one thing you can trace in the Canadian you know, um, um, cultural support system that is a, was a critical in Drake's success was 
whatever cultural support system Degrassi producer Stephen Stone um, and, and, and his wife uh, uh, put uh, uh, took advantage of, that was absolutely critical. And so that's a really good example of the sort of echo effect. Uh, Linda Schuyler, sorry, I, I, I didn't couldn't recall her name immediately. Uh, it's really she's the the brains behind the show, uh, and Stephen is the uh, business guy behind the show. And they were they were two incredible people, and and what they've done for Canadian culture is is, is amazing. But that you know that's an actually a direct thread. And you talked a little bit about how these artists hadn't played on the live scene, but they kind of launched you know without without doing that. And you know this music is all created on laptops now. Is Canada has also got this incredible community of beat makers and, and producers. <clears throat> Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of, yes. you know, how important that is now to music and also to the, the dominance of this, of this new force? You guys are really well-versed well at all this. Um, uh, you know, that's another brilliant point. Um, the, and again, I think it circles back to the Canadian culture. So Canadian culture is very collaborative and collegial uh, and in, 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 you know, compared to say, let's say American culture, which is much more competitive. Um, and there's two really good examples of, of that. Um, and the one is the, uh, remix project, which is, uh, an at-risk youth project in, uh, program in, in Regent Park area that has several different, uh, streams of, of, of things like sports and, you know, and et cetera, but they have a music stream and, um, a couple of the Drake's early camp people came out of there and they've, um, always put uh, given back. They really are very supportive of them. It's really become a farm team, uh, for the Drake camp. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the other one would be the, um, the Toronto beat, um, Academy, which was, uh, basically the equivalent of, you know, a couple of women in the, um, in the community seeing, uh, you know, you, you mostly young boys, but also some girls growing up and, and needing an outlet and being afraid if they don't have an organized focused outlet that they could, uh, you know, uh, get off the rails. And so, uh, they, these two women organized it and it became the primary activity was beat battles and they ended up going all over the world and winning beat battles. And so can we, we were a big supporter of them. We helped them, uh, uh, get to different locations for the beat battles. And out of that came, you know, half the other beat makers. And, and, and so they were there and they were tight communities. They supported each other. They weren't, they weren't jealous of each other's success. They were actually very supportive of it. And, you know, uh, one of the sort of, uh, you know, dirty secrets of it is they also shared cracked copies of, of the software, uh, necessary to, to make all these beats <laughs> before, before any of them could afford it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so this almost, you can almost, uh, you could run the DNA on, on all their programs and it all co comes back to one or two guys that, you know, that, that seeded the, the market, but that's, you know, but that's an example of the cooperation, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and they, it's, they help each other up the ladder. And, and of course you got at the top of those chains, you've got Drake, uh, you know, in 40, Noah, Noah Shabib, who uh, has a funny story uh, um, related to me when uh, at SOCAN, we gave uh, him and Boy Wonder some, uh, Boy Wonder um, and, and Drake uh, uh, some big awards one year. And uh, Noah and I were talking, he said, Mike, he said, I actually learned how to record in your EMI recording studio. And I said, 
gee, I don't remember you being signed to me. And he said, no, no. Uh, so, so, so I had an artist named Jellystone, who was a rapper, uh, who was signed to me and he was brilliant. And, uh, and I used to let him use the studio on nights and weekends a lot. And, uh, and Noah told me that uh, most of the time, Jelly would just hand him the key and, and let him go use the studio for whatever he wanted. So he says, I learned how to record on your, on your studio and on your equipment. But, they were, they um, were pirating the software and pirating your keys as well. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, this is a small contribution. But anyway, so the people at the top of those camps, these are, these, these are amazing people. Like, you know, um, they're, they're honest, they're sincere, um, they're, they're collegial themselves, you know, they're collaborative and, um, and, and, you know, you, 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 in many situations in previous eras and in other, uh, in other cultures, uh, somebody who's reached the magnitude of success of Drake or the weekend, they would have gone off the rails a long time ago in terms of, at least in terms of their ethics as human beings. And none of these people have. And so it, it, it cascades through and attracts people. It keeps people, and it teaches people how to behave. It teaches you not to be catty and, and jealous of people's success, but uh, that we're all, you know, we all succeed together kind of thing. We'll be back in a moment after this brief commercial break. Our episode today is brought to you by Boombox. Are you looking for new ways to discover new music? Boombox is an app that turns sharing music with friends into a fun game. In each round of the game, players submit a song that matches a theme, like best song to dance to or best song I've heard this year. You then vote on who had the best picks. Boombox used to be played with just small friend groups, but recently introduced a new version where you can play in public games. Matt, we've been playing in a few of these games. How are you doing so far? The public games are definitely harder because you don't know the tastes of your fellow players as well. But it's really expanding my music discovery to new tunes I wouldn't have otherwise found. The game's super fun to play, and it automatically produces a Spotify playlist each round. To find out more, visit boomboxsoftware.com or download the app from the Apple or Google stores. And we're back. You know, to keep it on the topic of the Canadian ecosystem, but to also bring it back to, you know, music royalties investments yes. and, and, and specifically Kilometer. Um, why, why is Kilometer good for Canadian artists? Like, why would they, is, why is, does it make, is, what's the advantage to the art from the artist perspective rather than just, you know, selling their catalog to the highest bidder? Uh, well, because, um, we, what we find is through my career, I found this and especially found this at SoCan when Rodney and I were repatriating um, all the stars that we did. Um, people, first of all, people uh, who aren't involved in the creation of music sometimes find it hard to understand that, um, that this isn't an asset. It's not a copyright. It's not content. It's their songs. And the, the people almost, they're almost like their babies, really, literally. Sure. The people are that mostly connected to them. So it's, it's almost like you're, you're, <laughs> maybe a bad analogy, but it's almost like you're giving up your, your, your children for adoption. You want to, and you care about the home they go to, you enjoy, you want to be able to trust the people. So, uh, you know, knowing that, that your, your, your life's work is going to um, people that respect it and you trust to be the stewards of it, um, uh, responsible stewards of it is, is a very, very big thing. And the other thing is that, that they all really, really care about the mission of supporting the Canadian ecosystem. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, you, you might get a hometown discount once in a while, be, you know, because of both those elements, but we don't expect, we you know, we're competitive with the rest of the marketplace, but once we're competitive, then the relationship and the trust and, and the mission really, really matter to these people. And, and so that's why that's one of the attractions of dealing with, with, with kilometer. Um, but in terms of, you know, what's going on right now, people are, as I said earlier, there's an unprecedented number of artists willing to sell and interested in eager to sell uh, some of the, some are all the rights. Not everybody's selling at all. So, and so the reasons I'd say the number one driver of this is the, the, the growth of the industry has driven up the valuations of catalogs. So it's very similar to, you know, you wake up one day and you find out your home or your condo is worth twice what you thought it was worth. And it's gives, you start thinking about, Oh, should I sell? Right. And, and um, uh, so that's number one, number two, COVID has been a major driver of people who, who rely on touring for a lot of their income. There's been no touring. Mm. And so they're looking to create, you know, create cash. Um, another, another large thing, especially for people who are later in their career, there's been an absolute 180 degree uh, sea change in the attitude in the artist community towards uh, their, uh, their estates and estate planning when it comes to their rights. They used to believe that the best thing they could do for their heirs was give them, was will them their rights. And the best thing they could do for the legacy of their music was to uh, will the rights to their heirs. And now they realize that it's not only very complicated, the rights business, but it's getting exponentially more complicated all the time. And very few heirs are are uh, set up and, and uh, trained or, or equipped to handle the complexity of it. And um, so now the thinking is I'd rather turn it into money and have my kids fight over my money than fight over my rights and ruin both their relationships and, and, and my legacy. <laughs> um, and, and, another, the other, and the other thing is that, um, you know, you referred to earlier that the uh, well, maybe it was before we were recording, but um, the talk about the paradigm shift of the business and, and, and you know, a lot of artists are, are not happy with the paradigm shift and what that paradigm shift is a transformation from a consumption, uh, you know, a transactional consumption. I'm buying a thing, a CD or, or a download or a vinyl or whatever, and a sort of a big bang of revenue from that. Uh, and then, but no, no recurring revenue after that, but it's all lumped together at one point in the transaction. A trans, there's been a transformation from that to just to this, um, people call it a utility model where there's this long, slow drip of revenue coming in over time. And, and that's one of the, 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 that's the main paradigm shift that people have a hard time uh, getting used to and adjusting to. So when you sell some of all your rights, you're really replicating that, you know, you're getting, you know, 10, 15 years worth of royalties in one check uh, right now. So you're getting the lump again, you know, you're, 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 you're transmutating the long drip it back into a lump. And uh, it's also economically it's treated as a capital gain rather than ordinary income. So, and people are thinking, well, I'd rather, you know, get my money now and, and capital gains tax, uh, lower tax rate, and then invest it in housing or, or my kids, you know, university or whatever. Diversify. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is not necessarily a new asset class. There have been investment uh, funds that have been investing in music royalties for a long time, but it seems like it's mm-hmm. hit a fever pitch in the last couple yeah. of years. And maybe, you know, mm-hmm. hypnosis has been a very uh, high profile example where they've raised, you know, 2.2 billion or whatever it is now and, and have bought some high profile catalogs, you know, right. Neil Young and Bob Marley and so on. So that got a lot of press, but what do you think is driving the the sudden interest in from from an investor standpoint like why do they want to own this asset 
Great question. And it starts with the growth. So, um, you know, the, the stream, the growth of streaming revenue is uh, driving primary driver. And of course, that 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 driver is um, a streaming driver is driven by subscriptions. So uh, more and more and more people are getting sub subscriptions and one or more subscriptions to music uh, streaming services. Um, and, and as the market starts to mature and get cl close to saturation in the in the uh, western world uh there's many many developing countries in the world which is just starting so you think of every smartphone in the world is a potential uh transaction point for a recurring revenue stream for, for for music so these giant pools of revenue are starting to build up and in 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 streaming and in radio the way that royalties are distributed it's basically a market share um you know if there's a billion streams this month and a billion dollars uh, generated that each stream is worth a dollar so if this song has a one percent market share it gets one percent of the you know the billion dollars that kind of thing so um uh that growth is a really great story. Every investor likes to get into a growth industry. Um, the other things that are driving it are, are there's way other forms of monetization of music in the digital space that are additive to that, not they don't cannibalize it. So, you know, social media, TikTok, uh, you know, you know, YouTube, um, even things like Peloton, all the home exercise things, um, the, the, you know, lyrics, whenever you search for lyrics and find them on the internet, or if you see them uh, uh, scrolling in time to the music you're listening to, that's all licensed for. In fact, the the uh, in, inventor of that space is a Toronto company called Lyric Find. Um, so th th these are and every it seems like every six months there's a new TikTok or a new this or new that. So the the proliferation of ways to monetize music in the digital space I think is endless. I believe that we're the begin early phases of the greatest era of expansion and growth in the history and prosperity in the history of the recorded music, and I think that that's what. You know, uh, Merck at Hypnosis believes, and a lot of other people believe. The investors are starting to realize that, and the so the growth is number one. Number two, music royalty streams are generally uncorrelated to the stock market. So if the stock market goes up and down, music royalties are holding steady. So investors investors are always looking for alternative investments that de-risk them worth most of their money or in the mar is in the marketplace. So that it's a, it, that's a, one of the best investments for that. Um, it's, it's, you know, a good catalog is a very stable recurring source of cash. Um, the other, the other thing is that they're starting to realize that in this new paradigm where these pools of money being generated by uh, subscriptions and ad revenue, et cetera, that um, in inflationary times, those prices are bound to go up as well. So uh, there will be some correlation uh, to rising uh, royalties in in inflationary times. So yeah, that makes sense for all reasons. Yeah, you know, I th we thought it might be interesting to go through a sample uh, case for your fund that just to sure. explain how this works for people. And I know music royalties are this very deep and dark, uh, complicated world, but um, maybe you could walk us through an example of a recent acquisition. Like you talked, uh, you made an announcement that you acquired uh, Belly's some of Belly's catalog. And um, maybe you could explain sort of, you know, he's he co-wrote a bunch of songs on the weekend and for Beyonce. So very uh, high profile uh, producer in the music industry. How, how did this deal come together? And maybe you can explain a little bit about what economics you're allowed to share. Sure. Um, well, it uh, this and that was our second acquisition and our first, um, which was uh, uh, a, a man named Sean Frank's uh, share of a song called Clo uh, Closer by the Chainsmokers. 
Uh, right. Both of those were great examples of our of our strategy, which is leverage our relationship with the Canadian music creation community. So uh, Sean was an, a longtime um, uh, colleague and relationship of Gavin Brown's, our partner, Gavin Brown. Gavin was very involved in, in actually mentoring Sean early in his career and, and, and helping develop his craft as a songwriter and uh, et cetera. And so that that started with Gavin calling Sean and saying, are you interested in, uh, in you know, in doing a deal for your share of close of closer? Um, and with uh, Belly, uh, one of the relationships that Rodney Murphy, my partner and, and I developed at SoCan and Rodney was the lead on this was um, uh, Sal, the weekend's manager, and who now is one of the uh, most prominent managers in the world has a whole very significant roster anyway we did a lot of business with uh, with him on behalf of the weekend and his uh and his other clients which were weekends co-writers like belly and the Gila. and we, we feel, really feel like we 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 really uh, took care of their business and their and their royalties at socan really well and we developed a very strong relationship that way and trusted relationship so um, again, that was a reach out to, uh, to Sal and Sal said, well, as a matter of fact, Belly is interested and, um, you know, we haven't had any serious conversations with anybody yet. This is the same thing with Sean. Um, but we really want to work with you guys. So if you come to the table with, uh, what we believe is a competitive offer based on what we know about the marketplace, uh, we're in. So that's what we did. And the way it works in, um, how you value a catalog is very interesting. Um, uh, people talk about it in, in, in the public as multiples, multiples of the average annual revenue, but that's, that's, you can conclude what the multiple is, but that's not how we value them. Uh, we do a discounted cash flow analysis. So we obtain uh, from, the, from the writer and the artist, we obtain several years of their royalty statements that come from places like SoCan and their music publisher or their record label. And these statements you now these days are tens of thousands of, of, of points of data. <laughs> you know, you can get very granular about where your song is being uh, uh, used and how it's being used and how much it earned. And so we uh, we put that into a model. We have a model that um, that uh, forecasts the future growth or the future decay of these uh, of, of these earnings. And, and most hit songs have a very predictable uh, um, uh, decay curve and, uh, you know, and, and economic cycle. And, and so uh, we figure out where they are in the cycle. We overlay some knowledge, cultural knowledge of what we have about the, uh, st staying power of the songs. And we use a discounted cash flow uh, analysis and we come up with what we believe the value is. Can you explain what, what is a decay curve? Like what, what does that mean? Sure. So, um, the, when uh, when a song is first released, of course, there's no consumption of it, no revenue. And then if it ends up being a hit, even before the word viral was a popular word, and even before the internet, all hit songs basically became viral through whatever means communication in society, word of mouth, you listen to the radio, whatever. And that's and, and so it's an exponential growth in the in the consumption of a song. And so that creates an exponential growth in the in the revenue uh, derived from that consumption. And so it's, it's a very it's almost like a mountain, half of a mountain. It's a really sharp rise to a peak, and then a slower decay coming down the other side of the mountain to a point where it settles into the valley, and the valley goes on for basically forever. So uh, if you can picture that, so there, and there's three three phases. There's the peak phase when it's when it's a hit and when it's coming off the charts. There's a stabilizing phase when it's starting to come down to that stable level. And then there's the stable phase, and in a, in a in a really quality copyright where it's doesn't have to have been the biggest hit in the world necessarily, and the, and the biggest hits in the world necessarily aren't necessarily 
the most culturally sticky songs, but there's a very high correlation there. So um, it gets its, uh, its, its hooks into culture and people want to listen to it the rest of their life, you know, add commercials and movies and TV shows want to appeal to the listener, to, to their viewers by you know, you know, the, attacking those emotional points that uh, related to those songs and they just stay around and therefore the royalties stay around and it's really stable on a, on a great catalog. Uh, you know, it's almost like an annuity onto the future. Uh, so, uh, you know, so it's almost like an oil well too. When you first uh, drill an oil well, there's a gusher of oil and because of the built up pressure and then it settles into a steady state. So, and do you think that, that, um, you know, you think about some of these enduring artists, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, uh, you know, that have probably the, the Beatles, you know, that have this longevity and their decay curve or their stability is is going to be decades, right? Where their songs will continue to get maybe not what they were, but some steady amount of streams. Do you think that's the same for different artists, or there's some that age better than others? And I guess we we don't know because you know, will the weekend endure for the length of say you know the Dylan or the Beatles? It's probably hard to tell until we fast forward many years in the future. It, it is hard to tell, but um, my you know. 40 year experience in the business has taught me that don't bet against it. Um, it, it it's it, once you become an adult and then a parent, you, you know, you, you, no matter how cool you think you are, you inevitably end up in this, they don't make music like, like they used to mentality. And yeah. it's a cycle <laughs> that just right. goes on and on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I never go there. I, I, I respect, you know, what, what, what kids today love to listen to. I respect it. I like a lot of it. And uh, personally, but I just know that that is those are the classics of tomorrow. I mean, the songs we've acquired, you know, uh, through our first couple of deals, you know, blinding, blinding lights, blinding lights is arguably, it's certainly one of the biggest songs of all time. And it's unbelievable how long it stayed around. It, came, it, it was a, one of the songs of the summer again this year in Billboard's list, and it's been out for two years. You know, um, you I know. could see that one. It also, it almost has a bit of an 80s sound. Like when I first heard that, I thought I was, for a second, I thought it might be an 80s song I hadn't heard just because of that synth. Yeah. And so yeah. some of those songs will probably just stick around for, for, for longer than others. Well, they do because they embed themselves in the culture of the current generation and that generation wants to, you know, spreads it and wants it the rest of their lives. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, you know, people used to laugh about certain songs that have, you know, there's no correlation between the sophistication of a song and its longevity. In fact, you could almost make an argument the opposite, like, you know, go back to the 50s, Tutti Frutti, you know, like. You know, at the time, it's considered to be an unbelievably dumb song. I think it's a classic now. Um, you know, uh, one of my good friends and and one of the songwriters I admire the most is a guy named Andy Kim. Oh yeah, and uh, and he's Canadian and um, and he wrote uh, a couple of my favorite songs of all time and a couple of I think the greatest pop songs of all time. One of them is being "Rock Me Gently," which he made a hit as an artist himself, and the other one was "Sugar Sugar," which was a hit, sugar, sugar. hit for a cartoon yeah. called The Archies. Yeah. Well, you know, at SoCan, we gave him a cultural impact award because it's extraordinary the longevity of this song. It's extraordinary the impact it's had on culture, and it continues to have. And, and generation after generation, and you go to his concerts, you see, you know, multi generational people singing the song. You know, it, it, it's it, it, people find it really difficult to understand how this happens. They think that the song has left their consciousness, it's left the consciousness of the public, and that's just just not true. And so I think that the classics, the evergreens of the future 
are some of the biggest hits that we're dealing with right now. And it's certainly like Blinding Lights, Save Your Tears and Closer and songs like this. I, I, I would you try and tell anybody from those generations that it's not a classic. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, active song management that mm-hmm. that your team would do. So, right. you know, I understand traditional publishers have a really low ratio of management personnel to song. I'd, I'd heard something like, one person might manage 20,000 songs in, in a catalog, which mm-hmm. obviously limits the ability to be out there actively marketing songs to, right. you know, video games and Peloton and all these different places where you can now, you know, sort of juice up the revenues. Um, so I guess I just want to learn a little bit about, do you actively invest in kind of growing those streams of the catalog? Like, do you have personnel that is pushing for representation in movies, commercials, games, and other places like that? Yeah. Well, we're, we're just beginning uh, of our growth uh, as a company. We, we uh, don't have um, those staff yet. We will very soon. Um, we also, at the beginning of, of our acquisition phase, we're generally initially acquiring songs that are still attached to other uh, stakeholders like music publishing companies, et cetera. That, so we, our, our first phase is to um, make sure that we're, we're, we're getting paid the royalties that we thought we were getting paid. And mm-hmm. so in other words, uh, policing that system. Second phase, the next phase of that is to work with the incumbents like the publishers uh, on their strategies and, and their efforts to uh, market the songs. Uh, we also are going to be engaging with uh, companies that are involved with use AI technology to scrape social media, to find uh, uh, unlicensed or, or unpaid uses of our songs. And then again, if, if we're not the administrator, we would then take that information to the administrator and, and and they would act on it. Um, and, uh, but we also have some couple of strategies that, uh, that I can't really get into too many details of that involve um, uh, making, you know, making special versions of the songs for special occasions and, uh, uh, you know, owning our own masters uh, version of our own versions of songs that, um, uh, that we can then license out. Uh, so th- these are all strategies that we can use. Um, everybody uses the same strategy. The, the, you know, the, the, what you just said about the ratio of people promoting songs to the size of the catalog, you know, on the one hand, that's a, that's an actual fact. On the other hand, it's a bit of a, uh, of a, um, a distorted fact because not every song in a catatalog is capable or, sure. you know, yeah. from some point there's, of view, deserve, deserves to be used. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's yeah. most of them. Most right? of them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now once in a while, you know, in, in my career, I, you know, EMI publishing particularly uh, when, when I was there for like, I was with EMI for over 20 years, Marty Bandier, the, the chairman was really active and really put a lot of resources into ensuring that, um, that all the people in the company were aware of the deep catalog and they put a lot of resources into working the deep catalog and they had some success. But one of the things I, I realized from that was that, you know, there was a, there, there's a reason why a song wasn't a hit <laughs> and once in a, once in a while, you know, uh, it can transcend that and it can get some uses and, and whatever. But most of the time, uh, the hits are the hits. They're hits for reasons because the ones that really impact people. And another thing is that um, we're going for high quality, you know, uh, copyrights, blue chip copyrights that, you know, that were big hits that embedded themselves in culture. And I've, I've always said, uh, you know, that I learned very early in my career that all the great shit happens to the great songs. And, and, and it's, it, you know, you don't like, for instance, um, you know, after we, um, uh, you know, after we acquired uh, the Belly Catalog, uh, 
uh, or we were in the process of acquiring it, but we agreed on the terms. Um, you know, Save Your Tears was re-released as a single again, the second time with a remix with Ariana Grande, and then it went number one. So, uh, you know, we didn't cause that to happen. It happened because it's an unbelievable song and because there's a great record company, uh, you know, working it, right? So uh, and I, I, the way I like to put it, the analogy is that uh, these great songs are like long, tall aluminum poles. And you want the tallest poles and you want to plant them in a field, a big open field. And, and you want the rain, the lightning storm to come across, come along. And then, you know, that some of those poles are going to get hit by lightning. And that's what happens with a great catalog. So Michael, in some of our other episodes, um, we've, we've interviewed artists and they have voiced some opinions about the fairness of streaming and how streaming has really not been economically great for them. I think one of our, one of our guests said it barely pays for her, her Netflix bill, you know, la, you know, the labels have long since been vilified as being the sort of bad guys kind of signing artists up to these predatory deals. But now some are pointing the finger at the streaming providers, Spotify, Apple, et cetera, um, as, as, you know, paying, not paying artists enough or, you know, a third of a cent per stream or whatever it is now, you know, I, I think given your background, you probably have a pretty good take on this. Like what's your view of, uh, you know, of the present situations are artists being fairly paid for their work? Is the system fair? Starting at a 30,000 foot level, I think this is the greatest era in history to start out being an artist or a music creator. Um, you have, this has been a great democratization of the tools to make music. You can make, you have more tools on your laptop than the multi-million dollar studio that I started out in as a recording engineer in the late seventies, early eighties uh, had. Um, you can get your music to the world without permission. So you can make music without permission. You can get it to the world without permission. Um, that's an incredible thing. The other thing about the music royalty system that is I never ceases to blow my mind is it's it's magic. You throw music out to the world and money comes back. It's an incredible thing. Um, now, if you look at are the streaming services paying a fair amount of money? Well, uh, radio, which to before streaming came along, was the number one source of uh, recurring revenue royalties. You know, for 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 songs and uh, songs particularly. Um, Radio stations pay anywhere from, depending on the country you're in, uh, anywhere from like 2% to maybe up to 10% or so of their gross revenue to rights owners. The streaming platforms, the minimum that one that them pays is 50% of their gross revenue. Most of them are around 70% of their gross revenue to, to the rights owners. So whether you believe in their core business model or not, and whether you believe that they, you know, they're underpriced or whatever, it's hard to imagine squeezing that much more lemon from the stone, from this, from the, from the, oh, that more juice from the lemon. Sorry. Um, so uh, I, I believe that that you know should people should creators always be paid more? Absolutely. Um, is there something fundamentally wrong with the percentage of the revenue that those organizations pay? I don't think so. Um, so where does it go? Um, the big one of the biggest inequities is that for various American centric market history, copyright royalty board decisions, legal reasons um, that the, the pendulum was set or the, the division of the pie between the master or the recording and the one hand and the song on the other was set by the American marketplace. And it happens to be about four or five to one in favor of the recording. 
Uh, that's the fundamental disparity, I think, in the, in the industry. Um, I don't think there's any reason why it shouldn't be 50-50, but that's a whole other argument. But at the very least, it's it's unsustainable, inequitable and unsustainable. And that pendulum, I think, will will, will swing back towards... So, the so isn't there some legislation pending, at least in the United States, that could change that a little bit? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, there's a, there was an increase. Uh, the, the Copyright Royalty Board was a, a mandated an increase in the, in, the, in, in part of the, the royalties uh, going to songs. Uh, but most of the streaming industry has is fighting it apple's not um i think it's probably going to happen but um the way it's supposed to but yeah so but, but as merck says uh merck the uh, founder of hypnosis and he, i think that you know he has said and much credit to him that his mission is to develop enough market power to change that inequity and because as he rightfully points out um the major incumbent music publishing companies um, have very complicated ownership relationships with uh, and, and business relationships with their sometimes sister, sometimes superior uh, record companies. And so this is general, basically a fight between record companies and music publishers. And so it's difficult for them to, to um, fight that fight in a manner that uh, would, would probably matter to move the pendulum. But there's, there's growing independent market share out there between hypnosis and round hill and, primary wave and hopefully uh, us soon, you know, and, and et cetera, and reservoir, all these companies could possibly move that pendulum. So that's, that's one thing. But the other thing is that, again, it's the shift from the big bang of revenue from the selling something to the long, slow, long-term drip that people are finding hard to, to, to uh, do. It's also, um, so I'll give you an example. At SoCam, we did a lot of work studying, you know, the people who were speaking up like this. And I, I'm, I'm not for a second, demeaning or undermining their reality and their reality is they're you know they were having trouble making a living but when you looked into it there was sort of like say the middle class artist the ones not the household names not the ones selling music or, or having their music being consumed all over the world but you know could consider them to be household names in canada let's say or well-known names in the music scene um you look at their situations they're generally their revenue came from three sources Touring, well, like what you let's say one third touring, one third selling CDs from the stage, uh, and 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 one third uh, their SoCan royalties so from a radio play. And in this type of artist, a lot of that was from CBC Radio. Um, so they made managed to make the transition from CD to download, okay, because they more or less made the same amount from a, a selling a download album as they made off of a CD they netted. But then when I went to streaming, that one third basically went to very minimal on a daily or weekly or yearly basis, maybe over the course of the next 20 years, very significant, but doesn't help me pay my rent this month type of thing. And, and, and uh, so that's what, that was one of the big, the, the big primary issues. The other thing is, is that people have this perception disparity and disconnect that um, is, it's, it's a bias in the brain that's very hard to overcome. They look at a million streams. They go, I got a million streams. I only got, you know, $10 or whatever. Okay, let's let's equate that to radio. If you have one spin, one play on a major commercial metropolitan North American radio station, you could easily have 100,000 people listening. So that is 100,000 impressions from one airplay. What would you get paid for those 100,000 impressions or that one airplay? I'm really simplifying it here, rounding things up. Let's say it's a dollar. So, okay, what is the value of each impression? One one hundred thousandths of a dollar. What's the value of a stream? Right around the same range, <laughs> right? And so, okay, how do I get a million 
how do I get a million impressions on radio? Well, by those, by the math I just described, get 10 plays on radio, you got a million impressions. No, the same people complaining about their streaming royalties would not for a second tell you they're successful if they had 10 plays on radio. Right. So you say that streaming translates more closely to replacing the radio revenue uh, than the CD revenue that they lost. Yeah. It's a kind of a blend. Of, so it's, it's a blend. It, 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 yeah. It basically cannibalizes the CD revenue and, 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 and transfers the radio revenue. So what I'm saying is that if you have a, if you have a global hit pop song and you did the math on the number of radio impressions, it'd be billions of impressions around the world. And what do you get paid? Million, millions of dollars. What that same song probably has billions of streams. What are you getting paid from those? Millions of dollars. Maybe not exactly the same yet, but pretty soon more. So, and I'm, I'm guaranteeing you, the people whose music is very popular are not complaining about the streaming royalties. No, clearly not. <laughs> That's um, so interesting take. And just what uh, also want to get your take on you know, kind of where this, where the industry is going, you've witnessed so many seismic changes in the industry and your, you know, long and storied career in the business. What do you think are maybe the top trends that will be most disruptive in the next decade? I think, um, absolutely overwhelmingly, the number one trend will be artificial intelligence and it's in its role in the creation of music. Um, the, the, if you look at, uh, the, the history of technology and music and, and the technology to make music um, is there's been absolutely um, inseparable connection between the two. Um, so let's pick up the thread. Uh, my favorite thing to do is pick up the thread of this discussion, say post-World War II. The end of World War II was kind of the end of the big band era. A big band was two busloads full of mostly guys who were extremely knowledgeable about their instrument and music theory, extremely trained, extremely experienced. And it took two busloads filling a stage at, you know, something like a Massey Hall to get enough volume and harmonic richness and range and density and frequencies, all this kind of thing to, to, uh, to have the impact. And, and to make a recording, they had to go into this Hollywood place called a recording studio, typically in New York, owned by the record company. You had to have the permission of the record company to get in there because it was so expensive and so specialized a place. And um, so then, you, then, then along comes this disruptive technology in the making of music called the electric guitar. And a great example would be Buddy Holly. So all of a sudden you have this guy who knows instead of, you know, lifelong learning and reading music, et cetera, uh, knows four chords, uh, has two friends, a bass player and a drummer, and they get together and, they, and, they, and he writes some songs himself. And they go into this somebody's garage where they have just democratized the owning of recording gear. Um, uh, his, Norman Petty was his producer's name and I guarantee you he bought his stuff used from those Hollywood places in New York and so all of a sudden these guys you know they're, the democratization of the music of, the, of both sides of those technologies enable them to go in, a, go in the guy's garage you know record uh, Peggy Sue and go out on the road three guys in a station wagon so look at the economic and disruption that that caused it also it was a different way of expressing music yourself through music. So it either created or enabled a different form of music to rise up. Probably a lot of mixture of them, but part of it would be, you know, the beginning of the influence of black music in America, 
um, and and uh, which is probably you know has been suppressed by the the, the you know the white owned systems and and so it, it's un, it starts to unleash forces and culture that were were held back and it also enables people who didn't have the opportunity to learn an instrument or the manual dexterity or whatever right so then the next big leap forward would be the sampler where you don't even have to play a guitar you can take somebody else's guitar music and record a little segment of it and manipulate it and create music and a lot of people a lot of people at the time didn't think that that was an art form or making music i think it's, history has proven it's actually an art form and it was being that technology was being utilized by the leading creative people of their generation so what does every generation do they pick up the, the, the you know the leading edge instruments of their ways of making music of their generation and 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 gradually you know the the also rands fall by the wayside get jobs but the people who are really really into it and driven and really really talented find a way to make it so that's what you kids kids with samplers you know did, did that and they're rapping over them uh, you know and and, and unleashed create cultural forces that were heretofore held back um and you know so uh, on and on and on and now the laptop and we've seen we've talked to you know this whole segment about the, the you know the result of having democratization of creation of music in your laptop democratization of getting it to the public uh you know that these are the forces and so what and so artificial intelligence is absolutely the next level it's even beyond you know running a sampler it's like and now and every single human who thinks they can make music will want to interact with these machines and i think that the the first wave of it will be people trying to emulate use ai to emulate what they know like like we talked before this started you know creating nirvana music or uh, doors music uh, you know whatever um or you know and I, you find right now the judge the way people judge the quality of the artificial intelligence is how much like a human it sounds but i don't think that's the ultimate game the ultimate game is to create something that no human could ever create and i'll give you a minor example um so the i credit the very first breakthrough, commercial breakthrough of the use of a sampler to create something in music that was astonishingly unique and fresh and innovative is, yes, Owner of a Lonely Heart, produced by Trevor Horn. And Trevor Horn had his hands on one of the first Fairlight samplers. And I was working in the professional recording studio at the time as an engineer and producer, and I saw the, the the phases first phase is oh great i can i don't have to hire a cello player i can get a cello player to play their instrument and now i have a cello in every key and i can play their part and it'll it'll replace the human but then it went from what trevor horn realized was that gee I wonder if i put the entire london symphony orchestra on each key and they went bam but bam, bam and bam. and then you always that's something that no orchestra could play no humans could play that and I remember, I remember where I was and I was driving on the 401 when I heard that song the first time and I literally had to pull over. I could not believe what I heard. <laughs> and that's where we're going to get with, with AI created music. And so what, and what, so what do you think specifically AI does in terms of, is it changing the sound, further democratizing things? Like what's the tangible benefit so i think that the, the 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 art will be how the humans take the ai and screw with it 
uh, and and in a, in a creative way that nobody ever thought of. And so I don't know. It's, I'm, I, I I don't even think that we can imagine. But a, a very simplistic example might be, uh, okay, I want to you know I've got an AI program here that makes music. There's various ways I can do inputs. I'm going to type some things. I'm going to say I want lyrics like Dylan meets Drake. Um, you know I, I want a uh, you know 80s disco beat. Uh, and but I want um, you know uh, uh, African me- melodies, uh, and and then all of a sudden it's got you know that blend of things, and, and it's a, you say okay, but you know take uh, double the you know triple the number of words in a bar, and then all of a sudden you, you got somebody spitting out words faster than a human can spit. You know, you know, I don't know. Yeah, but, it's but just a, a powerful tool that you think that artists are just going to take advantage of to create things that we can't even contemplate, but it's just a pl- new platform basically like the sampler right. was to and, our, the next generation. Yes. And they'll do it in a way that the creators of the AI never even imagined. So a, right. a, a very simple example would be autotune. The guy who invented autotune literally invented it to put people's vocals back into tune in, a, in an unnoticeable way. Um, the, the commercial breakthrough for the abuse of autotune was the share record, I believe, right? And, and, uh, and, and you know, was had the sort of warble to her voice in the chorus. And, and, and I guarantee you what happened there was the two younger guys were producing her. She wanted to update her sound. They're sitting there going, oh, gee, she's out of tune there. What do we do? Do we have her do it five more times? And then one, the other one said, oh, I heard about this new thing called autotune. Okay, let's go get it. They get an autotune device to get there. And they do what everybody does when you're first setting up a piece of gear. They take a knob and they turn it all the way left. Then they turn it all the way right. And when they turn, when they turned it all the way right, it went, and they go, hey, that's <laughs> kind of cool. And the next thing you know, that sound of autotune became it's part everywhere. Of, it became, yeah. You watch all the idle and voice type, the voice type shows. Those kids grow up listening to auto-tune records. They sound auto-tuned coming out of their throat. Right. Default right? by auto-tune, so, yeah. Yeah. So that's what's going to happen with the AI created music. Somebody's, you know, there's going to be knobs. There's going to be like uh, emotion, uh, happiness, sadness, uh, Dylan, you know, uh, Drake, uh, whatever knobs. And somebody's going to turn one to the left, one to the right, and they're going to stick a thing in between the two that nobody ever imagined. And it's going to come up with something nobody ever heard before. That's what's going to happen. That's awesome. So, so Michael, we, uh, we, we close out all of our podcasts by asking our guests, uh, for a music recommendation. What do you, what do you into lately? Lately? Well, my, so I break it into two camps, uh, songs we own <laughs> and songs we don't own. Uh, uh, in terms of, uh, songs we don't own to be, uh, uh, you know, broadly fair at first, one of my favorite songs the last few years is Olivia Rodrigo's uh, um, "Driver's License." I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think there's it's a there's not an not an accident that she's broken through the level she has. Um, she wrote it with a guy named Dan Nigro too, and and I just think it's a phenomenal song. And uh, you know, some it's not a new idea of mine, but people say one of the powerful things about it is it combines two teenage rites of passage. Uh, you know, heartache and obtaining your driver's license. And she does it in such a brilliant way, right? Uh, Did you see the SNL skit? Uh, the SNL skit where they're in a bar talking about it, all the, no, it's, no. Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's worth a watch. It's worth looking up. It's fine. But, okay. There you go. That's, that's a great example of cultural impact. If you don't have a cultural impact, you're not, that's not happening. Right. Uh, and in terms of songs we own, I mean, uh, I have to go with, uh, with closer and, uh, and blinding lights. Uh, I think closer is a, is, is a absolute, you know, party anthem of the future. 
uh, and uh, Future Generations and Blinding Lights. As I said earlier, it's one of the biggest songs in history, and uh, it's cert- it soon will be the most streamed song of all time. Uh, Closer is the sixth most streamed song of all time, by the way. That's and, awesome. Um, yeah, and and, uh, and one more plug for for uh, for us. Um, uh, by time we we close on our next acquisition, which be in early July, we will have stakes in. 10% of the top 100 stream songs of all time. So we're pretty proud of that wow. from you know, a little startup uh, Canadian organization, from oh, well, Canadian well, music. From we're Canadian creating music. this, uh, a playlist of all these recommendations. So we'll, we'll add your, we'll add your picks to that. You can find Fantastic. a link on our, on our website. So if people want to find, uh, want to know more about your work, find you online, what's the best place? Uh, we have a website, which is, uh, granted still pretty basic. Uh, we're focused on acquiring great catalogs, not building our website yet, but, uh, it's uh, kilomg.com, uh, K I L O M G.com. And there's an info, there's an info, uh, email address there that we monitor. So you're welcome to, uh, especially if, uh, if you're interested in investing in the fund and uh, we're still, uh, we're still well into our raise of $200 million. It's going really well, but we're not, we're not all the way there, there yet. And we need to keep that money coming in so we, c- we can keep acquiring these great catalogs and build one of the, uh, uh, certainly the greatest Canadian portfolio of all time. That's what we're, we're trying to do. That's awesome. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. And re- really great questions. And I uh, love your podcast. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm. And if you want to be part of the show, check out our Patreon link. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Tim Ratledge is our editor. Thanks for tuning in, and keep seeking. <laughs>